Hello everyone. Before we start, we just want to say how happy we are that Owen asked us to collaborate with him on this episode. Mythology Central is a truly outstanding podcast and we can't thank him enough for trusting us with the retelling of the Trojan War. It has been such a fun project unlike anything we've ever done before and we could not be more grateful to have been a part of it. We are the Classic Students Union at the University of Toronto. The Class U Senate exists to represent our fellow undergraduate classics majors at the university. From September to April, we are an elected body of 11 senators, but we come to you now as Class U Summer Senate, of which there are only five of us. I'm Sid, the Class U President. Happy to introduce our senators, John, Hannah, Jack, and my Vice President, Sarah. If you're wondering how we ended up here talking to you today, it's actually a funny story. Just over one year ago, we had a meeting in which we unknowingly set in motion a new direction for Class U. To prove to ourselves that Classics was still alive beyond our small but mighty department, we proposed a TikTok account. It started almost as a joke, though rooted in very real concern. Maybe if we brought Classics to a younger demographic, they'd be interested in pursuing the discipline when they enter higher education. From October to March, we managed to garner a grand total of... 50 followers. April was when the account took off overnight, and we haven't looked back. Class U now serves to represent an online classics community of thousands, in addition to our U of T undergraduates. This is how Owen managed to find us. What we've prepared for you today is a major step in our new direction, of bringing classics into new, easily accessible public spaces, and we couldn't be more excited and thankful for the opportunity. And with that, Class U is delighted to bring all you Mythology Central listeners the story of the Trojan War. Before we begin retelling the events of the Trojan War, I think it's important for us to first really situate ourselves in the historical context of what's happening. After all, historically accurate or not, the Trojan War is a story that's supposed to be situated in a real place and time, and I think it's important for us to discuss the very real implications of what it means to be telling a truly ancient story. So it's generally agreed upon by historians, ancient and modern alike, the events of this war take place at the end of what is known as the Bronze Age of Mediterranean prehistory. The Greek historian Herodotus places the iconic destruction of Troy at around 1250 BCE, while the archival inscriptions on the Parian marble date the Trojan War to the 13th year of the legendary king Menestheus. This is also projected to be around the late 1200s, and thus places the events of the war at a crucial transitional point at the beginning of the Bronze Age collapse. The Greeks we hear of fighting in this war are thus not the Greeks many of us are probably more familiar with. This was the time of a different people known as the Mycenaeans, styled by later Greeks as a quasi-mythological age of great heroes, and it is important to remember that the literary material left for us about the Trojan War was written much later in Greek history, and thus leaves what actually happened during this mysterious prehistory pretty open and unknown. Herodotus himself would not be born until about 800 years after the date he claims Troy fell. The Parian marble, whose precise original context we have unfortunately lost, claims that the Trojan War happened 954 years before the time of its writing. For all intents and purposes, the Trojan War and the Mycenaeans who fought it were obscure ancient history to our ancient sources as much as it is to us today. 
Many of you who've studied Greek history before will know that this is because there is a considerable gap in surviving literary sources over this period due to the fluctuating state of literacy in the Greek peninsula. The people living centuries after the collapse of the Bronze Age cultures involved in these myths do not seem to have produced any literary material, and the stories which constitute the Trojan War were transmitted orally over this missing period of time, and only first compiled as a textual whole by Nebus Corpus of poets during the Archaic period from the 700s BCE. This has very important implications on how these stories ought to be understood. We here at Class U generally subscribe to the analyst notion that epics like the Iliad and the Odyssey were not the product of a single composer, but a long and fragmented tradition of source collection and interpolation, and the long history of the stories which survive to us must be understood as a series of contributions by a nebulous centuries-long collection of oral storytellers and later textual composers who added to their own contemporary worldviews, rituals, and technologies to these stories in layers. To understand the events which make up the Trojan War is to be like a textual archaeologist, almost piecing together fragments of a narrative that each reveal their own rich histories. Now, coming from this much later archaic period and onward, the very much written tradition that still survives down to us is known through something called the Trojan Cycle. This was a grand corpus of epic poems variously attributed to these archaic authors, which tells the complete events of the Trojan War from a mostly Greek perspective. Of the many stories included in this cycle, you are probably the most familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey, attributed to the legendary poet Homer, and found in the syllabi of universities across the world. These two are kind of the only epics in the cycle that we can actually say we have. The rest of them, like the Kypria and the Nostoi, only survive to us as fragments and are mostly lost to the erosion of time. Luckily for us, this partial body of epics is by no means the only way we can access the Trojan War. Later ancient authors remained fascinated by their own mythological origins and thus continued to innovate upon this tradition with their own new ideas and analysis. And as a result, we have a rich body of historical, theatrical, and academic fan works which describe and reference these early epics and their contents. Many of you might know Virgil's Aeneid, for example, an epic written in the Augustan age, which delivers its own unique take on what happened after the fall of Troy through the perspective of the hero Aeneas. And for the theater kids like me in our audience, I'm sure you know that Greek tragedies also often played with events from this mythological prehistory. Euripides' Iphigenia at Aulis, for example, famously depicts the human sacrifice of Agamemnon's daughter before the Greeks depart for Troy. We also possess a rich body of ancient scholarship which tried to reconcile with these mythologies in order to sort out their own history. For example, modern scholars have recently become interested in translating a body of ancient commentaries known as the Homeric Scolia in order to understand how Hellenistic scholars interacted with this mythical aspect of their own past. With all of this context given, I'd like to now move on to delivering some important final notes on the narratological context of the Trojan War before we can really begin telling the story itself. For those who are still interested in the actual history involved, do not worry. We'll be circling back to the historicity of the Trojan War at the end of this episode.
With the formation of the Trojan War stories being mostly oral, it's important to remember that mythology is not spontaneously created by the genius of one individual, nor does it exist in a vacuum. Even just the idea of the Trojan War being a thing that exists is based on a long and active tradition of audiences and storytellers who questioned and innovated upon a fluid mythology generation after generation. We are reminded throughout the epic corpus itself that storytelling is a subjective, innovative, and deeply powerful art. Images from Achilles' shield in the Iliad are used as a narrative medium through which the narrator poignantly explores greater cosmological questions. While Odysseus endears himself to the Phaeacian king Alcinous by fulfilling his request to recount the heroes he met when he summoned the dead in Hades. Just as there is no one story or one conclusion to pull from Odysseus' travels or the shield, there is no supreme or original authority we can really turn to in understanding such a diverse and fluid tradition of telling good stories. This idea of narrative fluidity and audience interactiveness, I think, is particularly important to remember for a culture like ours that has become quite dependent on the idea of canon. I think we tend to overvalue the existence of some kind of single, indisputable version of reality because we're insecure about our own seemingly insignificant place in the grander scheme of human history. How often have you heard people claim that everything important has already been invented, or that postmodernism is only capable of merely reacting to a greater past? We often forget that history is a fluid and ongoing process, and we must remember that with every retelling of the Trojan War, including this one, we are actively making a history of our own. So let's strap in, folks, and make history, as we explore the story that has shaped so much of our world. The Trojan War began with a wedding, but not just any wedding. It was a wedding between a goddess and a man. Thetis, the reluctant bride, was a scene of marrying Peleus, the very human king of Pythia, it was a momentous occasion calling for an unforgettable celebration on Mount Olympus, and unforgettable it would be. Little to the knowledge of the partygoers, something was about to happen that would solidify that fateful day in the minds of everyone in attendance, as well as in the grand scheme of history. Someone crashed the wedding. Her name was Eris, the goddess of strife, and by virtue of her domain alone, it's understandable why she wasn't invited to a wedding. But this angered her. So she showed up unannounced, but at least Eris had the consideration to not walk in empty-handed. Everyone watched in horror as the goddess strolled up to the newlyweds and placed in the hands of Peleus a golden apple with three words carved into the side. For the fairest. This apple is now known to us as the infamous apple of discord. Eris, true to her nature, single-handedly kick-started the chain of events that would bring about unprecedented strife for gods and humans alike. Just as the joyous wedding united the mortal and immortal realms on that unforgettable day, so would they continue to reunite in bloodshed for years to come. Now you're probably wondering how an unsuspecting apple could bring about such turmoil. And well, here's where things started to go wrong. Three Olympian goddesses began to compete for the golden apple, all believing themselves to be the fairest. Hera, queen of the gods, Aphrodite, goddess of love and beauty, and Athena, the goddess of wisdom and strategy in war. 
To put it lightly, no one in their right mind would want to get involved, as it would mean suffering the wrath of the goddesses deemed, well, not the fairest. This included Peleus, especially as the newest already controversial member of the family, so to speak. And so Peleus passed on the apple to Zeus, king of the gods, to decide for himself, who also knew better than to get involved, especially because Hera was his wife. Successfully removing himself from the dispute, Zeus declared the need for an impartial third party to ultimately decide which goddess was the fairest. And so Zeus turned to Hermes, messenger of the gods, and ordered him to go and find their judge. And so he went. Where, exactly? A city called Troy. In the mountains surrounding the great city of Troy, Hermes met a young shepherd named Paris. The messenger of the gods explained the purpose of his arrival, telling Paris that he had been summoned by Zeus to judge a beauty contest between goddesses. It's been said that Paris wasn't exactly the brightest man in all of Greece, which probably explains why he readily agreed to judge the competition. But as you can probably guess, Paris was no ordinary shepherd. So let's rewind a bit. Roughly 20 years prior to the wedding of Thetis and Peleus, the first event in our chain. The king of Troy was a man by the name of Priam, alongside him his queen Hecuba. Troy was a thriving city in Bronze Age Greece, and all was well in the kingdom. But that was all about to change. One night, Priam was startled awake by the sound of his screaming wife. Hecuba started having recurring nightmares, which worried Priam both as a husband and a king. You see, dreams meant something very different to the Greeks than they typically do to us today. Dreams in the ancient world were messages from gods, and oftentimes they served as warnings. Despite this, Hecuba refused to tell anyone what exactly was plaguing her sleep, eventually prompting Priam to put his love and concern aside for the greater good of Troy. He forced Hecuba to share the contents of her nightmares, or suffer the consequences. And that's exactly what she did. Hecuba was pregnant at the time, about to give birth to her second child with Priam. Her first son was named Hector, the heir to the throne, who we will meet again very soon. At night she dreamed about giving birth, but it wasn't to a child. It was, well, a torch. Every night, Hecuba gave birth to a torch that would be used to burn Troy to the ground. Every night, she saw the destruction of her beloved city delivered from her own womb. The horrified prophets interpreted the dream and came to only one heartbreaking conclusion. If Hecuba's baby survived, Troy would fall. A couple nights later, Hecuba was fast asleep after giving birth to a healthy baby boy. And that's when Priam did what he had to do, and he took the newborn, gave him to his chief herdsman, and ordered the death of his child. And so the herdsman took the baby into the mountains, but couldn't bring himself to commit the bloody murder demanded of him. Instead, he left the newborn to the elements and reported back to Priam that the job had been done. The torch had been extinguished, and Troy could continue to burn bright. Unless, as the torch dwindled on the mountainside, a shepherd came across the abandoned newborn and chose to take him home. He spared this baby's life, knowing nothing of the consequences, unaware of Hecuba's nightmares and the nightmares that would ensue. 
the flame was ignited once more. His name, the shepherd decided, Paris. Not to ruin the moment, but some people also called him Alexander because he was very adventurous, but we'll get back to that later. Now let's jump back to what we know as the Judgment of Paris. Hermes returns to the gods on Mount Ida, torch in hand. It was time for a goddess to be awarded the golden apple of discord once and for all, and our dear forgotten Prince of Troy was about to get the job done. And so three goddesses stood before Paris, who was most likely coming to terms with his impossible task. And so Paris being Paris turned to Hermes with a solution. He said, I can't judge these goddesses with their clothes on. And at that point, Hermes sighed, questioned his choices, and nonetheless told the goddesses to strip who all rushed to do so. This is the first instance of Paris thinking below the waist rather than with his brain in really crucial moments. It will happen again. Like right now. Despite getting naked for him, the goddesses could tell that this was going to be a hard decision for Paris, and so they all started to bribe him. Hera went first. She stepped towards him, met his eyes, and offered to make Paris the most powerful man in the world. Quick on her feet, as always, Athena's next. She says, Paris, if you pick me, I'll make you a force to be reckoned with on any battlefield you may brave. And then it was Aphrodite's turn. And you know, Aphrodite really doesn't get a lot of credit when it comes to her intelligence. But she nailed her offer. She knew what Paris could not refuse. And so she goes out to Paris and says, Paris, if you give me the golden apple, I will give you in return the most beautiful woman in the world. And if there's anything you can give Paris credit for, it's consistency. Aphrodite was the winner. She was the fairest. And as Athena and Hera stood there, probably planning the countless ways to make Paris suffer for his ruling, he turned to the fairest goddess Aphrodite and inquired who exactly this woman would be. The most beautiful woman in the world. Who would it be? She looked at Paris and told him simply, When you see her, you'll know. Her name was Helen, known as the woman whose face launched a thousand ships. This is a catchphrase commonly used to describe Helen, and I just think that it's not only distasteful, but also wrong. Helen has a backstory that is absolutely imperative to the retelling of the Trojan War, but I want to talk about Helen herself for a second. She was so much more than just the most beautiful woman in the world. She was so much more than what happened to her after the Judgment of Paris in terms of Sparta and Menelaus and Troy and the Trojan War and all of that. She had a very tragic life beforehand, and it started with her mother before she was even born, or should I say, hatched. Yes, hatched. Her mother's name was Leda, and if you haven't heard of her before, you've probably seen her before. This myth has served as a brutal inspiration for so many artists. I can't explain why, but here's what happened. Leda was raped by Zeus, but not in his anthropomorphic form the way that we know him, but as a swan. And then nine months later, Helen came into the world. Before Helen was even a thought, she 
was a product of divine intervention. Unwelcome divine intervention. Nothing in Helen's life would be untouched by the gods. But when it wasn't directly the gods, it was something else. Autonomy was never in the cards for Helen. But all we want to remember her by is her beauty and how she was too beautiful for her own good. That's simply not true. But it certainly made things worse. There's no denying that she grew up to be a beautiful young woman, and that's why when it came time for Helen to marry, kings and princes from all across the world arrived to try and win Helen's hand in marriage. So many suitors showed up, in fact, that her stepfather, Tyndarius, feared that there would be a revolt by those who would not have the honor of calling Helen their bride-to-be. Enter Odysseus. Odysseus was the king of Ithaca and hero of Homer's second epic, the Odyssey. For those familiar with Odysseus, he was a hero not for his appearance nor his ability in battle. What set him apart from your average person as well as your typical hero was his intelligence. Odysseus could find his way out of any ordeal with reason and ease. If not with a potentially disqualifying amount of casualties, in my opinion, but so long as the main character lives, I guess. Tyndarius expressed his concerns to Odysseus, knowing that he was the only man capable of coming up with a quick and efficient solution. Knowing thyself, Odysseus was well aware that there would be no Helen of Ithaca, and so he struck a deal. He would solve the problem for Tyndarius in exchange for his niece's hand in marriage, Penelope. Tyndarius was aware that Penelope wasn't necessarily in high demand, especially relative to Helen, so he agreed, and Odysseus set a plan in motion. Before the decision was to be made as to who would marry Helen, every suitor was to take an oath. Not only would they not retaliate if they were to lose, they would protect Helen and the marriage at all costs. Tyndarius sealed the oath by sacrificing a horse to the gods, and this ensured that the suitors, all pious men, would never break their promise. But boy, oh boy, did they want to, and for good reason. You see, Helen was awarded to this guy named Menelaus at the strong, strong suggestion of his brother Agamemnon. Tyndarius agreed for political reasons. The whole thing was rigged and everyone there knew it, but retaliation was not an option. The suitors had already taken the oath. And in the eyes of the gods, every suitor climbed back onto their boat and sailed home. Other than Menelaus, they all left Helen behind that day, but their oath to protect her, however, would remain. And of course, as you can probably guess, that oath would not remain uninvoked. Let's jump back to Paris for a second. I left out something very big that happened to him, mostly because there are a lot of different accounts with contradicting timelines, but the end result is all the same. This is the account, however, that would probably best explain the second name of Paris that I mentioned earlier, Alexander. One day, servants of Priam appeared in the mountains of Troy and drove away the finest bull that Paris had, they were holding funeral games for the son they had lost all those years ago, and the bull would serve as the prize. Yes, this annoyed Paris, but he could not defy the king's wishes. If he wanted his bull back, he would have to win it fair and square. And so he followed the servants back down into the city and entered the games himself. Paris won every contest. All of Priam's fifty sons 
yes, I had to include that in somewhere, were furious that a commoner would surpass them when they had all received training to excel as high-born men. Swords drawn, they were about to fight Paris. But Cassandra, his prophetic sister, revealed that he was their brother. Priam and Hecuba welcomed Paris back home. As the flames from the altar roared in honor of many victories that day, so did the flame on the torch, in anticipation of only one but final defeat. The stage has now been set for conflict to ensue and strife to take over Bronze Age Greece, ordained by the resentful goddess Eris on the night of Thetis and Peleus's wedding. Paris, our forgotten prince, our torch to burn Troy to the ground, has returned to the kingdom, waiting to meet the most beautiful woman in the world promised to him by the goddess of love herself, Helen of Sparta, who is married to Menelaus, protected under a solemn oath taken by her suitors, and here is where we begin to see the Trojan War take form. Paris goes to Sparta. Why, when, how, whether he knew that the woman promised to him was even there. It's all up for debate. All we need to know is that he's there, and Menelaus is very happy to see him. I would like to talk for a second about Xenia, which is what Menelaus shows Paris, which makes what comes after even worse. Bronze Age Greece was not politically unified, but they shared a common culture, and within this culture was a sacred principle that was a pillar of ancient Greek identity, and that was Xenia, which roughly translates into hospitality. Hospitality towards strangers and travelers, and I'm not talking about being nice to a mutual friend at a party. I'm talking welcoming someone into your home and treating them like family. But it was so much more than a social norm. It was a religious practice. Zeus himself was the protector of Xenia. He embodied the obligation. And Menelaus made Zeus proud. He welcomed Paris into his home, showing him around the entire kingdom and giving him the royal treatment for nine whole days. And Paris, being the people person that he was, built a strong bond with Menelaus. It was a brotherly bond that surpassed the standard obligation to Xenia. But it was this brotherly bond that caused Menelaus to make the greatest mistake of his life. It was on the ninth day, Paris's last night in Sparta, when Menelaus did something very unorthodox, to say the least. He had asked Helen, his wife, to come and have dinner with them, and this was not a standard practice for reasons that will become apparent. And so Helen walked into the room, and Aphrodite's words to Paris came rushing back to him. When you see her, you'll know. And when Paris laid eyes on Helen, he knew. She was the most beautiful woman in the world, the woman promised to him by the goddess of love herself. Menelaus had to leave Sparta in a rush, and this is when he would make his second and final mistake. Because of their brotherly bond forged through Xenia, Menelaus trusted Paris enough to leave him behind. And when he returned, he would realize where he went wrong and where they would need to go from there. On that night, Paris made his escape and boarded ship hand in hand with Helen of Sparta, wife of Menelaus, the man who showed him exemplary Xenia that would make any god proud. And 
as they sailed off, Sparta becoming smaller and smaller behind them with every passing moment, Helen's marriage faded into the distance. From then on until the day her new home would burn, she was Helen of Troy. And when Menelaus returned home to see what Paris had done to him, he immediately ran to his brother Agamemnon, who reminded him of that little handy-dandy oath. Helen had been kidnapped. And that meant war. And so the suitors returned far and wide to fight for Helen's safety. Despite having thousands and thousands of men, Agamemnon was still concerned about two. And these two people, one we've met and one we've kind of met, were nowhere to be found. Agamemnon sent for Odysseus first. He needed the smartest man in Greece there. Odysseus would be the brains behind the operation. And so he sent Palamedes a messenger to go and get his guide, to go and get the mind that would lead them to Troy and bring them home. Except it wasn't there. Odysseus was there, but his mind was long gone. He had lost his mind. Odysseus had gone mad. Ithaca was in shambles. They had lost their king to madness. Penelope, a new mother, had just given birth to their baby boy Telemachus. It was a disaster. Odysseus spent his days babbling in a field, trying to work the land a bit, which was made harder by the fact that he had tied a donkey and an ox to the same plow. But something wasn't quite right. Palamedes knew in his gut that Odysseus was faking it, and he had to prove it. How? Remember that baby boy, Telemachus, you know, Penelope's pride and joy? Oh yeah, and remember that plow that I mentioned? Yeah, Palamedes threw the kid in front of it. Palamedes knew that if Odysseus was faking madness, he would never allow his little boy to die. And he was right, Odysseus jumped in front of the plow, saved the day, boom bam, he's on a ship to Troy. And now there was just one more person that Agamemnon needed, the deadliest weapon in all of Greece. And in order to introduce him properly, we have to go back to the beginning. Thetis and Peleus have a kid. Well, they have seven, but Thetis kept on killing. Whole other story. Point is, one lives. And his name was Achilles. Thetis was always aware of the mortality of her child. She wanted Achilles to live forever, just like her. This is where you get the whole Achilles heel thing where she dipped him in the river sticks to try and make him undying. This panic was made worse by a prophecy. There were two options for Achilles. Either he would grow up to be a great hero, but die young, or live a long life, but be remembered by no one. Achilles was a hero in the making. He grew up to be smart, strong, attractive. He was going to be the best man in Greece. And Thetis knew, as she watched her son grow up, that when the opportunity came along, he would choose to be that hero. He would choose glory. He would go off to war and die young. The Greeks were not going to win the Trojan War without Achilles, but if winning meant the death of her son, Thetis wasn't interested. 
and knowing full well that Achilles would be eager to join once Agamemnon came knocking, she forced him into hiding in the island of Skyros, where he lived disguised as a woman. Achilles was a young man with long blonde hair, so this wasn't really a bad idea and he almost got away with it. But Agamemnon sent Odysseus to go and get him, the smartest man in Greece. So in that way, he really had no chance. From one hero to another, Odysseus recognized Achilles amongst the other women in the court and put him on a boat to Troy, much to the horror of his mother. Now that they had their 15-year-old killing machine, the Greek army was complete. The Greek army gathered in Aulis before heading to Troy. This is where they made a sacrifice to Apollo, and something curious happened when they did. Suddenly, a snake darts under the altar coming from a tree where he ate one mother bird and her nine baby sparrows. Ten birds in total. The soothsayer Calchas said that this was a sign from Zeus himself, and this was the message. The Trojan War would last ten years, and in that tenth year, Troy would fall. And so they headed off to Troy. They never actually made it, but they made it back to Aulis eight years later. They all tried to leave the island that day, but they became lost after chaotic winds separated them. Some heroes went off alone, other heroes went off in groups. Some of them even fought a mini-war in Mysia for some reason. But all you need to know is that the Greek army does reunite. It's on the eve of the Trojan War that the beauty of mythology reaches its peak. I've told you how this is going to end. We all know how this is going to go down now. We know how much blood will be shed, and we know how far the fire will be spreading. But the ending is not when the prophecy gets realized. The myth ends when there is no one left to succumb to its meaning, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that the story is never really over, because here we are. I urge you to keep this in mind as John tells you the second half of the Trojan War. And at the end of our retelling, the fire will stop burning. It stopped burning thousands and thousands of years ago, but, but that doesn't mean that we can't rise from the ashes. Because of a fragmentary nature of our ancient sources, and the fact that we've lost the epic Cypria, which would have recounted this part of the Trojan War, the first nine out of ten years, are also pretty fragmentary and undeveloped. As such, I'll be shifting the focus of the section more towards the events which take place near the end of the war, as they are more fully attested for us through works like the Iliad and the other miscellaneous mishmash of ancient scholarship which accompanied these works. Of course, I will still do my best to provide you with an overview of the wars in entirety, and so I'd like to now take a moment and give a big shout-out Pseudo-Apollodorus for informing much of what I know about the first nine years. Thank you. You may be dead now, and your real name lost, but at least your work was invaluable to some tired undergrads on a continent you never knew about. What a way to go. Now, let's begin with the second gathering at Aulis. After being blown off course from Troy to Mysia, it somehow takes our motley gang of Greek heroes eight entire years to get back together at Aulis. 
seeing the great competence these men have clearly gained for themselves during their side quest, the second attempt at leaving is obviously going to go a lot better. Immediately, our brave Agamemnon angers a god. You see, the winds had stilled at our good Aulus, and the air had become stiff and hot with antagonistic refusal. Day after day the ship seemed chained to the waters, unable to leave. No air at all catches their brilliant sails, and the Greeks realize with dawning terror that they are stranded in their own port. It is fortunate for them that they are equipped with a seer. The illustrious Calchas, favored by Apollo, was consulted, and defining the will of the gods, he discovered what had happened. Apparently, Agamemnon had committed an act of the greatest hubris, and angered the goddess Artemis. While hunting for sacred deer one day, as you do, he decided to proudly proclaim for the whole world to hear that not even Artemis herself could have made as great of a shot as he. This angered the goddess, who felt deeply slighted by this act of arrogance, and it was up to Calchas to proclaim with great sorrow that she would not bring the winds back until Agamemnon had sacrificed his fairest daughter to make up for it. So, with his back against a wall and his leadership at stake, Agamemnon sends Odysseus and Halbithius back home to his dearest wife, Clytemnestra. Of course, not even Agamemnon is stupid enough to go sauntering up to his own wife like, Hey, is it okay if we, like, kill our own daughter in cold blood to fight a stupid war that could honestly be settled by Menelaus and Paris sitting down for two minutes? Thanks, babe. I knew you'd understand. No. He needed a strategy, and the strategy he came up with was convincing the poor woman that he wasn't going to kill their daughter, just to marry her off to Achilles and his boyfriend Patroclus, so she can die inside instead. So there came the young bride, undoubtedly dressed up in all the bells and whistles her queen mother could afford, to the altar the Greeks had set up for her secret demise. I wonder how she felt in that moment. How or if she even came to the realization before her they killed her on that altar, that her own father and his comrades now valued her more dead than alive. Our hero, everyone. For those of us who are understandably angered by the poor girl's fate, I'd like to reassure you that there's actually several versions of what happened that day. Some accounts claim that Agamemnon absolutely refused to sacrifice his own child, and instead sacrificed a deer in her place. Others, like Proclus and Pseudo-Apollodorus, claim that, although they did try to kill her, Artemis instead whisked her away to be a priestess and even made her immortal. So lucky for us, there's quite a lot of versions where she makes it out okay. And you know what? I'm really happy for her. Anyways, from here the winds miraculously returned, and the Greeks now sailed for Troy. Now, what's important to remember about the initial landing is that the Greeks really, really believed in prophecies. This was not our world of agnostic uncertainty. The gods were absolutely certain to exist, and, unless you were really unlucky enough to be tricked by one, they meant it when they said that either they or fate were going to kill you. So you can imagine how terrified the entire Greek army was when Calchas, our sweet-voiced singer, told them that the first one to disembark the ships 
would be the first to die. By the time the Greeks had arrived in the port at Troy, all of the top command were essentially playing a game of ancient Greek chicken to determine who the hell would get off first. Eventually, one hero steps up. His name was Protesilaus, but this was likely not his real name. Protesilaus literally translates as first to jump, after all, and the Latin scholar Hyginus additionally claims that his real name was Euleus. But Protesilaus is what we will call him for the brief window of time in which he will exist in our story. Of brave, virtuous stock and a phenomenal soldier, he alone was not afraid to make the first steps. Jumping off of his boat with his fellow Thessalians, it was he whose feet first touched the soil of Troy and finally locked Greeks into the fate which had awaited them for years. Hector soon killed him, indeed making him the first of the Greeks to die, but he had died bravely and would later even be resurrected by the gods who smiled upon this bravery and allowed him to be with his beloved wife Laudamia one last time. The next nine years are kind of fuzzy. As I had mentioned earlier, the sources surviving to us were not very interested in telling us about the first years in any kind of real detail, and were essentially told that Achilles, Agamemnon, and all their fun Greek friends ravaged the Trojan countryside, running from Lesbos to Arcadia and taking a huge load of stuff with them. Among this stuff was a captive woman named Chryseis. An important part of the war prizes taken by ancient Greeks, or anyone for that matter, was slaves. There is no glossing over the simple fact that the ancient Mediterranean was a slave society, and it was more than normal for the invaders of any city or region to kill and rape their way through the land, taking living captives to be sold as slaves and abused by their captors. Unfortunately, Women captives were especially prized, not only for their skill as weavers and cooks, but as sex slaves. These women would be taken by their male captors as brides, often raped over and over by these men in their company until, weighed down by months or years of cruelty and exhaustion, these women often died unceremonious deaths in servitude to their oppressors. Though slavery itself was nothing to write home about in this society, what made the specific capture of Chryseis notable was her father. On the tenth year, the elderly Chryses arrived in the Greek camp to beg for his daughter's return. He was a priest of Apollo, a dutiful servant to the gods who seethed at the destruction of his pious home, and he now came hobbling forward to beseech the Greeks' return the blessed family they had stolen from him. Unfortunately for everyone involved, it was our very intelligent hero Agamemnon who had put his claim on poor Chryseis. Agamemnon, ever the man to put too much stake on his own pride and image, refused to trade Chryseis for any volume of riches Chryseis could give him. He did not want to be embarrassed by having to return his hard-won war prize and threatened the old man to leave or else. Understandably, this was not what Chryseis had wanted to hear was some half-wit chief king from across the sea was keeping his daughter in chains. Leaving the Greek camp, the elderly priest prayed to Apollo to punish the Greeks for their cruelty and pride. Hearing his desperate message and enraged by the Greeks' disrespect for his own priest and disciple, Apollo sent plague to devastate the Greek camp. 
This plague raged on for nine whole days. Greek soldiers perished left and right as the sickness moved its way through the camp, discriminating for no one, as tents flooded with the sick and rivers clogged with the bodies of those who had perished in war with Apollo himself. Finally, after nine days, Achilles steps forward to call an assembly for a solution. All of the Greek leaders head to Agamemnon's tent, where they meet the seer Calchas and demand to know why the gods were punishing them with plague. Calchas, ever the seer, reveals that it is Apollo who is angry with them, the Greeks having ravaged and then disrespected the family of the priest who serves him. They would continue to pay for their arrogance until Chryseis is returned to her father. Once again, Agamemnon is given yet another chance to display his overwhelming pride and lack of tactical intelligence. After much screaming between him and Achilles, he insists that he will only agree to relinquish his captive for a trade. If Achilles were to give him his own slave woman, Perseus, Agamemnon would agree to return Chryseis and stop the plague from terrorizing their soldiers. This does not end well. Achilles then threatens to kill our stupid hero Agamemnon for his slight against his name, and it is only through divine intervention from Athena herself that the meeting does not end in the tragic and premature slaughter of our two headline heroes. Though Agamemnon is putting Chryseis on a boat by the end of the day, the seizure of Briseis seems to unlock some sort of visceral anger in the heart of our strong hero Achilles. What follows can only be described as the product of a deep and heroic rage. Cursing Agamemnon and returning to his tent, Achilles now proclaims with great bitterness in his heart that he refuses to fight again for the Greeks. That night, Achilles leaves his tent and makes his way to the Trojan beach in search of his mother in the waves. The scene in Thetis had always been immensely supportive and protective of her mortal son. And on this particular occasion, Achilles had a request to make that would irreversibly change the entire course of the Trojan War. In a moment of deep and self-righteous anger, which could have only come from the belly of an egomaniac slighted, Achilles asks his mother to punish the Greeks in battle so that they might come to regret insulting his reputation. Thetis, of course, never one to deny her son, flies up to Olympus that night, and soon Zeus is firmly on the side of the Trojans. Perhaps the greatest fault of all Greek heroes, if we audiences can agree on one, is the deep and often very damaging significance these individuals placed on their reputations. The petty and selfish deeds of Agamemnon and Achilles, though they undoubtedly serve as character moments for these two deeply flawed heroes, I think also reflects a storyteller that is using these characters to argue against a wider ancient worldview, which placed significant weight on the glory of the individual over the group as a whole. This was not the trim, democratically governed world more familiar to classical and even archaic Greek audiences, but one mostly ruled by chieftain kings who sought the power of Kleos not only to bolster their own renown, but to escape death itself by immortalizing their names. Something I personally really enjoy whenever I read the Iliad is how one of the most central themes our heroes continually contend with, the ever-looming threat of their own mortality. Why, we must ask ourselves, 
Do we as mortals do anything at all? The only certain thing in our lives is that we will eventually die. If we are ultimately sentenced to be reduced to nothing by virtue of simply having been born, why do we try at all? Why fight wars, make great speeches, grow immense power, or even just try to be a decent person if it doesn't mean anything? The solution these heroes came up with, I think, is perhaps the greatest explainer of the sort of arrogant bullheadedness that I think tends to create a sort of values dissonance with modern audiences and leave us quite confused as to the purpose of their seemingly senseless arguing. The thing with Kleos, this all-important idea of heroism, glory, and reputation, is that it's viewed as something only mortals can gain because it's fundamentally based on the fact that they will die. To live without having been seen by someone else was not to live at all in the eyes of an ancient people who feared death more than anything else and treated time as an enemy to be conquered. Being able to win visible honor through heroic deeds and immense wealth was a way for the greatest of heroes to survive themselves and transcend to an existence that would last far beyond the soft and fragile decay of their bodies. In this sense, the argument between Achilles and Agamemnon is not merely petty or greedy, but in fact quite existential. Here, two of Greece's greatest heroes fight over war prizes in an indirect conflict over the life beyond life that they had been raised to venerate and desire more than anything else. When the Trojan prince Hector challenges the Greek hero Ajax to a duel later in the Iliad, he crystallizes this deeply existential component of honor by promising that he will return his body undefiled if he wins, so that the Greeks may give Ajax proper burial. By doing so, he hopes that one day their descendants in a far-flung future will remember them all the same, their iconic duel, and the names they bore surviving the oppressive erosion of time that will eventually claim us all. Speaking of Hector... I think now is as great a time as ever to jump over to the Trojan camp and introduce you to a very different, and yet parallel, dilemma faced by a people under siege. While the Greeks may have been concerned with the chaos they might gain from sieging Troy, there is no understating the sheer terror that the Trojans felt with the enemy hot at the gates of their impenetrable city. In the great chaos and glory of epic, earth-shaking battles. It is important to remember that the Trojans, too, had families and lives and dreams within the walls of their beloved city, which threatened to fall each day the Greeks loomed closer towards them. One of the most heartwarming and incredibly tragic examples of the real lives even our glory-hungry Greeks recognized or infected by the injustice of war may be that of the great hero Hector and his wife Andromache. On one day of the continuous back-and-forth fighting that had plagued the shores of Troy to the tenth year now, the Trojans found themselves greatly overwhelmed. The Greeks, having had a fortuitous turn of events that day as the battle suddenly fell in their favor, had pushed them far up against their walls and were no longer even stripping fallen Trojans of their armor. They effortlessly slaughtered through the army. Helenus, one of the wiser Trojans, urges our hero and commander Hector to make a strategic retreat. Sensing just how overwhelmed his army had become by the ravenous throng of Greek soldiers, he bade them retreat again behind the strong walls of Troy 
and asked the Queen Hecuba and the other Trojan women to pray to Athena for their protection. It is during this incredibly brief moment of quiet for Hector that we are introduced to his little family. Visited by wife Andromache and his young son Astyanax, not even old enough to even walk on his own, we are treated to perhaps one of the most beautiful and tragic images of the peace that could have been in a city we all know is doomed to fall, leaving its inhabitants dead and weeping in its charred remains. Poor Andromache, knowing the great danger Hector posed to himself fighting on the front lines, begs him to stay with her and their son and live in domestic peace as a family. Hector, knowing his fate lies in protecting his city, is unable to fulfill his wife's greatest wish and the two share one of their last tender moments together, laughing and teasing when little infant Astyanax gets scared by Hector's warrior helmet and begins to cry. How tragic it is to know, in advance, that this little Astyanax, too young to even put on his own shoes, would later be slaughtered in the crossfires of a generation he didn't even belong to. With tender and heartbreaking moments like these abound throughout these stories, it cannot be understated how much of the myth of the Trojan War is not fundamentally about the great warrior deeds so much as it is about the simpler and yet infinitely more powerful force of love. There is something to be said about the idea that what makes us human is precisely our ability to express a great variety of love, not only for our favorite people, but also our community at large. It is perhaps Hector's greatest gesture of love that he would throw his life aside to defend the city he called home. What does it say of him that Hector defends Troy to his dying breath, despite knowing it will fall? What does it say of all of us that we still choose to love each other, day after day, knowing that relationships will end, family members will die, and that we are ultimately powerless to prevent the oblivion that claims everything in its due time? What does it say that despite the heavy cost and the sacrifices involved in loving something, we mere mortals still choose to love anyway? What is it about choosing love that makes us all just a little more human and a little bit better than if we hadn't? With the theme of love introduced and this all-important question posed, I think we're finally ready to turn towards the beginning of the end of the Trojan War. Now, I must finally tell you about the rage of Achilles and the love that made a human out of the monster that once was. Achilles, because he is an ass, is still refusing to fight. Instead, he sits in his tent, day after day, singing of heroic deeds on his lyre while not being much of a hero himself. Days pass and countless Greeks die of his inaction. And it is on one of these days that his companion Patroclus can simply no longer stand by the suffering he has caused. The Greek ships are burning. The Trojans had once again turned the tides of the battle and fought all the way to the ports themselves, having set them alight as the Greek soldiers scramble in vain to save themselves from the carnage. Once again, spurred on by the senseless destruction of the men he had traveled with and now knew his fellow Greeks, Patroclus begs Achilles to join the fight and thus regain the Greek advantage. Though Achilles refuses to fight on his own, Still feeling slighted by his countrymen, he allows Patroclus to go out and fight in his stead, wearing Achilles' armor and leading the fresh Myrmidon troops back into battle for the first time in a while. 
Patroclus sets out with the explicit request that he return home to his companion immediately upon beating the Trojans from the ships, going no further. Seeing him ride away with his men, Achilles then prays to Zeus that Patroclus might not only succeed, but come home to him alive. Unfortunately, fate had other plans for the kindest and humblest of our Greek heroes at Troy. Though Patroclus is immensely successful in beating the Trojans away, being a skilled warrior and hero in his own right, it is here that a certain arrogance strikes him and he sets out chasing Hector and the Trojans back across the field in a murderous rage rather than turning home. He is so successful in his endeavor, imbued with fresh strength, that he chases the terrified Trojans all the way to the very gates of their city. Patroclus might have taken Troy down alone in this moment had the gods not intervened, as Troy was not yet fated to fall. The god Apollo descends into the fray of battle, sneaking up behind her oblivious hero and easily wounding him, leaving him stranded and disoriented out on the open fields of Troy. O Patroclus, kindest and best of the Myrmidons, I am so sorry for the fate that must befall you. In one fell swoop, Hector descends upon your broken body, and you never even stood a chance. Achilles, understandably, does not take the news of Patroclus' death very well. Though all of the Iliad had been in some form about the heightened rage of our strongest hero, it is here, in this moment, that Achilles' rage reaches a sort of divine fever pitch only reachable by a man with nothing left to lose. With the object of his love gone, the kindred man who had angered our hero to humanity. Achilles loves no one, and it is because of this that he becomes a truly inhuman force of nature that we often know him as today. The following morning, Achilles skips breakfast as he gears up to take vengeance upon the Trojan army. In a particularly obvious symbol of his transition from angry man to enraged god, from the one who is mortal because of love to the crop-drowning storm that loves nothing and leaves nothing alive, the gods fill his stomach with immortal ambrosia to give him strength in the oncoming battle. What to say next of Achilles' exploits? Nothing could stand in his path. He kills so many Trojan soldiers that the river Xanthus, which runs through Troy, begins to choke with the sheer pile of bodies our hero has left at his wake. The river runs red, and as a lion awoken to feast upon his prey, Nothing could stop Achilles from killing every soldier he laid his eyes upon. It is only with the appearance of Xanthus himself, the god which embodied the river Achilles now defiled, that his rampage could be dampened, attacking the actual god himself in the animalistic rage that had made him more nature than civilized. Achilles nearly bests divinity itself before god, now checking the mortal's runaway pride drags him underwater and nearly drowns him before Hephaestus intervenes and pulls him to safety. In the ensuing chaos of death and evacuation, it is soon our brave Hector and Hector alone who stands outside the gates of Troy. But the Trojan king Priam begs and begs his princely son to retreat behind the walls with his army, to come home. Hector knows that he has no choice. It is he who followed the Trojans to camp outside the walls and left them vulnerable to Achilles' attack. And it must be him alone now who owns up to the deep shame and love for his family he feels and faces our Greek hero for the last time. Achilles faces him now, 
the man who had killed his humanity and now stood to be slaughtered himself. He begins chasing. It is on their fourth run around the walls, Hector too afraid to fight but too proud to retreat, that he is finally slain. The goddess Athena tricks him with the image of a comrade into believing he can take Achilles in battle, and soon Achilles has cornered him and begins his brutal slaughter. In his dying breath, Hector begs the hero to leave his body undefiled and return it to his family for a proper burial. But Achilles is no human anymore, no longer beholden to morality. Disregarding all sacred funerary tradition, he instead defiles the body of the man he despises most by tying him to the back of his chariot and dragging his mangled corpse through the dirt over and over again, riding around the walls of Troy for all the world to see his destruction. O oh, Hector, valiant and dutiful defender of your city, did you know what would come when you died? The Greeks returned home victorious that night, having brokered an agreement to pause their fighting and bury their dead, and Achilles brings the body of Hector home with him like a perverse war trophy to continually drag through the dirt. On the twelfth day after Hector's death, Zeus takes pity upon his poor family, sends the messenger Iris to tell his father to initiate a trade. Though the incursion into the Greek camp is perilous, and Hecuba begs him not to go in fear that the Greeks might slaughter the Trojan king where he stands, Priam follows Zeus's good omen and embarks in the night on a chariot towards Achilles' tent. What follows is one of the Trojan War's most touching and sincerely human interactions over enemy lines. Achilles, seeming to have come down from his divine rage, does not kill Priam. He does not even leave the old man out in the cold, but invites him inside and offers him food and a warm place to sleep. There, the two discuss the return of Hector's body. Though Achilles remains steadfast in his bitter vengeance, Priam appeals to the young hero by reminding him of the family love no doubt shared between Achilles and his own aging father, Peleus. The interaction leaves both men in tears, remembering the families each had left behind or left in pieces on the battlefield, and Achilles remembers his humanity long enough to return Hector's body to the father that had loved him when he was alive and now loved him still, and enough to brave the crossfire and give him a proper burial. This scene is perhaps the most salient crystallization of love as the creator and definer of what it means to be human. Achilles wanes from god to man again as an appeal to love brings him back down to earth. And it is here and now that two very different men, from opposing sides and both fated to die, are learning again to be human together by realizing the universality of love and all the human emotions they feel. Unfortunately, this little happy ending is not the end of the Trojan War. After all, no amount of love or good storytelling can avoid what has been prophesied to come since the beginning. Troy must fall. How it falls is a little convoluted. After returning the body, some more fighting happens between the Greeks and the various opposing forces. The Amazon queen, Penthesilea, makes a little cameo before being slain by Achilles, as does the Ethiopian king Memnon, who suffers quite the same fate not long after. Finally, after having killed quite a few sheriff people and the gods' favorite children specifically, 
the Olympians finally decide that it is Achilles' turn to die. The myth of Achilles' heel is almost definitely one of the best-known and most enduring mythologies to survive into our modern world. Hell, we named a tendon after it, so now every time someone hurts their foot, the doctor gets to remind them that Achilles existed and had it way worse. Our funny little hero Paris, ever the coward, finally manages to strike Achilles dead with a poisoned arrow from his hiding spot. Though this method of killing is not particularly brave, and archers are derided as cowards throughout the epic mythos, Apollo guides his arrow and lands it firmly in his heel. Achilles dies a fairly unceremonious death for a hero of his impact and caliber. The abject cowardice of Paris's actions leave Achilles still venerated as truly unmatched in battle. More fighting ensues, as it always does with this lot, and eventually the crafty hero Odysseus, who may be the only Greek general still alive with brain cells, soon realizes that the fighting is pretty useless if the Greeks can't actually get through the indestructible walls of Troy, no matter how many they kill. For obvious reasons, this presents a bit of a problem for a group of people who are trying to get inside the city to destroy it. The solution Odysseus comes up with is as astronomically silly as it is surprisingly smart. Vacating Troy by taking their boats to the islands around it, the Greeks begin building a giant wooden horse, this horse being hollow, massive, and somehow very structurally sound, is then loaded up with Greek soldiers ready to sneak themselves through the gates by deception rather than brute force. The Greeks leave one youth hanging outside of the horse to present it to the Trojans, and soon the plan is in full action. This youth, named Sidon, soon comes across the Trojan cohort. Pleading for his life and good intentions, he claims that the Greeks had retreated in defeat, abandoning the poor kid in Troy with only the wooden horse as a tribute to the goddess Athena so that they might return home in safety. Dangling the tantalizing prospect of divine favor before the Trojans, he then hints that they themselves might be able to win the goddess's favor instead by bringing the horse into the gates of their own city. Now, you might ask, Surely at least one Trojan was not high enough on whatever gas was clearly drifting through Troy to actually believe that this suspiciously large and hollow wooden horse was actually what Sinon claimed it to be. You would be correct. The only problem is, when the gods are actively working to bring about the fated destruction of the city you live in, there is nothing they will not do to ensure that fate happens the way it should. Such an unfortunate silencing of reason is precisely what happens to our poor priest Laokuan, guessing correctly that something nefarious is afoot and begging his fellow Trojans not to trust any gifts left by their enemies. His protests are quickly silenced when Poseidon sends two serpents out of the sea to strangle him and his sons and put a quick end to his objections. Depending on which ancient source you're reading, a few other people in Troy also figure it out. The priestess Cassandra discovers the Greeks inside, but has been famously cursed by Apollo to never be believed. While well, Helen claims in the Odyssey that she, too, knew of the plot, but had become homesick and said nothing so as to facilitate the destruction of Troy and her own speedy return to Greece. However it happened, and regardless of who knew, the Trojans brought the horse into Troy and began the fate they had been given. Soon the horse was opened and Troy fell to sword into flame. 
the legacy of Poseidon's great city, the towering citadel of Asia Minor, ended there in catastrophe, along with everyone inside of it. All that once towered and shone now descended into dust, and soon Troy, our beautiful and tragic city, was no more. For those of you who've made it this far, congratulations. How does it feel to have been part of an oral tradition spanning thousands of years, in a way perhaps more tangible and honest than the often dense and inaccessible text we read in our classroom? You have touched the history which connects us to you over land and sea, connects our modern world to some bard reciting the story by memory over the deep chasm of thousands of years, and briefly made your mark on one of the oldest storytelling traditions surviving to us still. How does it feel to have made history just by listening? Now, we promised you all that we'd touch back on the idea of historicity. Though the Trojan War makes a very good bedtime story, how true is it to the real events which occurred in the Eastern Mediterranean at the end of the Bronze Age? Was there ever a Trojan War? Was there even ever a Troy to speak of? The answer to this question is complicated, to say the least. In antiquity, our ancient authors generally took the events of the Trojan War for granted. Though some historians, namely Herodotus, introduced a fair amount of skepticism over the precise details of what had happened, it was generally accepted throughout the ancient world that the Trojan War did happen in at least some capacity. Geographers writing of their travels through the Mediterranean often wrote of places they claimed bore significance to the very historical idea of the Trojan War. Strabo made copious references to the peoples and events of the war in his description of the Eastern Aegean and Pausanias also incorporated the story of the Phocian contribution to the Trojan War during his geographic overview of Phocis. Modern scholars, however, are much more skeptical. For much of the academic history of modern Western Europe, it was generally accepted that the story of Troy was either an outright mythological fabrication, or at least only loosely based on events that might have happened in the area. The 19th century scholar George Grote famously calls the story little more than an interesting fable. This view began to change, however, with new developments of archaeology in the 19th and 20th centuries, bringing forth new evidence of a prehistory many believed was lost to us forever. While we will not make any claims about the historicity of the Trojan War here, nor will we spend too much time unpacking the various contrasting evidence found over the decades, I think it is fitting to give you a little taste of how exciting this scholarship is by presenting the two most iconic pieces of evidence, the excavation of an archaeological site called Hisarlik, and the possible evidence presented in the textual records of a people known as the Hittites, who lived in Asia Minor, where Troy was said to have stood. First, the archaeology. Before we begin discussing the history and findings of this famous site, we need to first discuss an important term in archaeology of the Near East, a tell. For those of you who are not familiar with archaeology, the process of material deposition essentially creates layers of material over time which can be excavated to understand the evolution of human activity and material culture in this given area. Much like a cake, the law of superposition basically dictates that the oldest layer of material deposition will be at the bottom. In the ancient Near East, it was customary for humans to build using mud brick. Not being a particularly strong or enduring material, these mud brick structures tended to collapse over time and then be built on top of by more recent mud brick structures. Over the course of many, many years, a heavily occupied site is apt to develop a large earth mound known as a tell. This is essentially a big hill containing all the layers of mud bricks that have been destroyed and then built over. 
I'm sure many of you are familiar with the eccentric figure known as Heinrich Schliemann, the 19th century amateur archaeologist who blew up a lot of the mound we will be discussing in a rash effort to get to the bottom and is known in our popular culture for having supposedly identified the historic mound at the site of Troy. This is not exactly true. Seven years before Schliemann arrived in Turkey in search of Troy, the amateur and self-taught archaeologist Frank Calvert first explored the historic mound and suggested that it may have once been the true resting place of this legendary city. Rest in peace, Schliemann and Calvert. You might have destroyed and looted a lot of the mound you've now commonly believed to be Troy, but at least you found it. Thankfully for us, archaeology has since progressed from the explosive strategies employed by the likes of Schliemann and now identified this site of Troy as a series of distinct layers of occupation. There are nine layers of occupation in total, dating all the way back to the 3000s BC. And the layers which are most concerned with are layers 6 and 7, which date to about the suggested period of the 1200s and 1100s BCE, at which Troy was said to have fallen. Both layers show signs of heavy destruction. Troy 6 seems to have been leveled and then rebuilt after an earthquake, but with a single arrowhead found suggesting that warfare had not played a large part in the destruction, while the destruction of Troy 7 shows better signs of human violence. This more recent destruction dates to around 1190 BCE, is marked by signs of fire. Additionally, bodies are found throughout the city in association with bronze arrowheads, and one skeleton was excavated with clear skull injuries and a broken jawbone. While this may perhaps be our best evidence yet of a war having occurred here, we must stress that the discoveries are still uncertain. There is much of Troy that has not yet been excavated, and not yet enough evidence to definitely point to a man-made violence or any other kind of disaster. Leaving behind the site itself, another very exciting piece of evidence is the Hittite textual records, which may mention the existence of a city we now know as Troy. The Hittites themselves were a powerful Anatolian people who existed during this time in the ancient Aegean. Their records, separate from those of the Greeks, paint an incredibly illuminating picture of the people with whom they shared the land, now known as Turkey. A particular place name mentioned by the Hittites has drawn fascination by scholars. This is the city we know as Woulusa, popularly identified with Ilium, the other name of Troy. Associated with this city, the Hittites additionally depict two individuals also seemingly connected to the figures of Paris and Priam. Woulusa is said to have been ruled by a king named Alexandu, or Alexander, another name attributed to the hero Paris, and also portrays a political figure known as Piamoradu, who has been identified as a possible cognate to the old Priam of Troy. Of course, scholarship on the subject continues an intense debate today whether or not we will ever definitively know of the existence of Troy and the war which destroyed it remains unknown. But why does historicity even matter? Does the factual existence of Troy truly contribute to the significance of our Trojan War story? Or has mythology come to take a unique space of its own? I'd like to think the latter. While the ongoing scholarship concerning the historical basis of Troy is undoubtedly fascinating, it is important to remember that mythology does not rely on historicity to be important. The imagery of Troy and the heroes who fought in our fate of war does not diminish in significance to our culture merely for not having existed. That is perhaps the greatest thing about storytelling. It is flexible and fluid, capable of existing in its own right simply because people continue to believe in its importance and has launched more ships and written more constitutions in the course of its reception over thousands of years than perhaps ever fought at Troy, if such fighting happened at all.
That is why it is especially important for us today to continue engaging with the millennia-long story in the making that is the Trojan War. To hear it and speak it is to continue to innovate upon a long tradition of reinterpreting the Trojan War, connecting us today to the long-dead figures of the Archaic, the Hellenistic, and beyond who considered this mythology central to their own culture and helped to keep it alive for us today to continue adapting on our own. The Trojan War is neither sacred nor sacrilege. It is up to us to make history day after day and generation after generation by telling our ancestors' stories in a way that is unique to ourselves. Perhaps one day we too will become part of the great corpus of works future scholars cite when they discuss the history of the Trojan War, like Herodotus or Strabo or Pseudo-Apollondrus. Let us too continue to explore through these stories what it means to be human. To conclude this very modern vein of thinking, we highly recommend two contemporary texts when dealing with the Trojan War. One, Memorial by Alice Oswald, is a fresh translation of the Iliad, which includes only the names and descriptions of the various soldiers who fall at Troy. A particularly poignant exercise in the sheer impact and art that is translating, this work is particularly notable for shedding new focus on those whose lives then and now fell as casualties to human conflict. Another one is something I'm sure many of you have heard before. The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller is a modern retelling of the events of the Trojan War from the perspective of Patroclus, focusing on legendary and intimate relationship between him and the hero Achilles as the story mediates on love and loss. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for having tuned in to this very, very long and very, very dedicated special on the Trojan War. The entirety of Class U thanks you for your listening and your patronage. And most of all, we'd like to extend one last thanks to our amazing host of the Mythology Central podcast, Owen. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity.